0: Listener supported,
1: WNYC Studios. Uh, just a, a warning about this episode: you may not want to listen with kids around. We're going to be talking about some pretty grown-up subject matter, starting right from the top. In five, four, three, two, one.
0: By the way, don't ever have sex with friends. <laughs> it was it was very bad.
1: In today's episode, we're going to be talking about mistakes that people make and what happens when you go public with those. And just to be fair, let me start. I did not check the weather forecast. So I'm like just up in the middle of some like really icy hills. Just to set the scene for you, I'm in Portland, Oregon. It was last month. It was one of the snowiest days they had had in a decade. The Uber driver decided he didn't want to go any further because it was too snowy. Like everyone else here, the family I had come to visit was hunkered down, lighting a fire. Ow. It felt like frontier times out here, in 21st century Portland. And
0: then, this one's my favorite. Okay, here so Bianca Stella has armloads of fairy
1: houses. Yeah, she's coming. All right, so... This is Jennifer Jaco. She's sitting at her dining room table, and her 10-year-old daughter, Bianca Stella, is now walking over towards us with a teetering stack of fairy houses. These are beautiful, homemade, earthy little doll houses, but for fairies. Um... They're real. I have proof. Okay. Do you want to see the proof? Um, yeah. Bianca walks away. She's a bouncy little kid with bows in her hair and freckles across her nose like a galaxy. When she comes back, she's holding what looks like a, like a glass paperweight or something.
2: No touching, though. No, no, no. They gave this to me on Christmas Eve.
1: What it, is that?
2: Here, um, let's go into the light.
1: <laughs> okay, so. so
2: do you see the dolphins swimming around?
1: So it's a glass sphere, and there's, like, little dolphins inside, made of bubbles.
2: Uh, yeah, like pixie dust, I guess. But they're handmade by the fairies.
1: Jennifer's off to the side during all of this, watching her daughter take me through the fairy business. Jennifer looks pleased, like she's happy that, at ten, Bianca Stella can still have this kind of magic in her life. The two of them have had to have some very heavy conversations, specifically about one very, very big mistake that Jennifer made— When she was 18 years old, she was infected with HIV. Bianca Stella is HIV negative, but since she was about three years old, Jennifer's been slowly rolling out the details of all of this to Bianca. As she's gotten older, though, and more curious, Jennifer and Bianca have had to have some conversations that seem like they've been getting tricky for both people. I got just a hint of this later that night. We were all standing around in the kitchen.
0: Can you speak? again, about how you were sad to find out that Mama made a choice as a young person?
2: I don't really want to talk about that because it's kind of weird. Okay. Yeah.
0: And maybe that's part of it, too. It's a little bit weird as a little kid to hear about this stuff, isn't it? Okay, my mouth is being closed. I won't talk about it anymore, I promise.
1: you got to feel for Bianca. This is not fun stuff to talk about. But on the other hand, the idea of her holding her mom's mouth shut It's pretty funny because Jennifer has spent the vast majority of her life being radically open about these choices, never thinking she would be here in this moment. This is Only Human. I'm Kenny Malone. Jennifer Jaco spent a lifetime trying to explain a single mistake that she made. In this episode, we tell the story of that mistake and how it ultimately took a secret experiment on one of America's favorite television shows to correct the record. Here's a short list of the unexpected things that Jennifer Jaco says happened to her after becoming a minor celebrity in the 1990s. She was recognized by complete strangers in New York City, twice. A different complete stranger named her daughter Jaco in Jennifer's honor an industrial band wrote a whole song from Jennifer's perspective.
2: A conservative priest has me for advocating safe sex for teenagers.
1: They even mixed a Jennifer Jaco speech into the song.
0: Today is my birthday. I'm going to be 20 and I'm HIV positive. You all have to understand that if the person next to you could be HIV positive, your lover could be HIV positive, and they don't know, you have to be careful.
1: This was the 90s. The AIDS crisis was on the front page. It was in church sermons. It was at the dinner table. And this is the story of how Jennifer Jaco became an unlikely face of the epidemic. This
0: is actually here when I was growing up in Portland, this grocery store. And if we went out...
1: Jennifer's showing me where her story started 25 years ago. We're in downtown Portland. She walks up to a big storefront window and peers inside.
0: Now it's different. It's carved up differently.
1: She's 43 years old. She has dark hair, dark eyes. And because it's cold today, Jennifer's dressed in flowy black and charcoal layers, like a gothic Stevie Nicks.
0: And I remember it being much bigger than it is. This looks so much smaller. And maybe the whole world was bigger to me then.
1: On a gray September day back in 1992, Jennifer was standing in this same spot in front of what was then a public health clinic.
0: I was wearing my torn 90s jeans and kind of a hippie style shirt.
1: At the time, Jennifer was 19 years old. One friend described her to me as a wide eyed innocent. Compared to her friends, she was a bit of a late bloomer. She lost her virginity at 18 to a long term boyfriend who then broke her heart. Later that year, she had a drunken one night stand with a high school friend. It ruined the friendship. It was the only time she'd ever had sex without a condom. She felt like she wasn't taking intimacy seriously enough anymore. And so she decided she wanted something different.
0: And I wasn't going to try to date casually like all my friends were. I wanted a real relationship. And if that was going to happen, I wanted to make sure that I was being safe because I was healthy and I wanted to stay that way.
1: And so she did the responsible thing and got checked out. She remembers coming in here for her follow-up appointment. She remembers the doctor calling her in. She remembers that he seemed somber.
0: It was very simple and short. He simply said, your pap smear is normal, but I'm sorry your HIV test is positive. I'm sorry. And that was when he ushered the counselor in. i I know that I must have been here for at least an hour, but it I don't remember. I, it was just this like where, where there's a radio station that's not coming in quite right, everything was fuzzy, everything was a blur. I just remember walking out and that I couldn't stop crying, crying while I was walking down the street, crying in the bus. I didn't know how to adjust to being this new thing and I didn't know how to adjust to being this disease.
1: Jennifer was infected with HIV in 1991. At that point, the U.S. was 10 years into the epidemic, and treatments were not very effective. Doctors told Jennifer she shouldn't expect to live past 25. Turns out Jennifer, the boy she'd had sex with, and the boy's current girlfriend were all HIV positive. Three teenagers, suddenly with very different futures.
0: And I remember this giant welling of anger that these young, beautiful people with All of this life ahead of them had a disease that was going to take our lives. And I knew in that moment that I needed to do everything I could to prevent it from happening to other young people.
1: Back then, people assumed that HIV didn't happen to a person like Jennifer Jaco, with some reason— Almost 90% of AIDS cases were men, and only a tiny portion of those were people under 20. There was a survey done around this time by ABC News. They told people that, look, HIV has been overwhelmingly a problem for gay men and intravenous drug users, but are you worried it might spread to the general population? The vast majority of people said, yes, absolutely. But then they asked, okay, are you personally at risk? The vast majority of people said no. In other words, it was a moment in time where Americans knew the epidemic was coming, but still didn't think it happened to people like them.
3: So I was sitting at my desk one day, and this young girl walked in. She was 19.
1: This is Gay Monteverdi. In the early 90s, Gay worked at an organization in Portland called the Cascade AIDS Project, where she oversaw a group of people with HIV who were willing to be public about their disease.
3: If I recall correctly, she had these tall leather boots and this filmy black blouse and long hair, and she was gorgeous.
1: Of course, this person was Jennifer. After being told she had HIV, after watching the boy and his girlfriend learn that they had HIV, Jennifer wanted to dedicate the rest of her very short life to something radical and simple, to just raise her hand and say, this happened to me, it can happen to you, don't make the mistake I made.
3: She sat down next to me and she said, I want to join the Speaker's Bureau. And I said, That's really wonderful, thanks. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And she said, Well, I got tested last week and I'm positive. And my first thought was, You got tested last week, honey. You don't want to do this today. You need some time to deal with what's going on with you. I, I was just terrified about sending her out to talk to a group when she had had no time to figure out what this meant to her life. And in those days, this was a death sentence, and it was a pretty quick death sentence. It was, you know, sell your house and go to Maui because you got maybe six months.
1: But Jennifer was driven. Within a month, she was going into classrooms and before groups of young people talking about her HIV. This is from a video of Jennifer in front of a group of high school students.
0: And from that minute forward, my whole life fell apart. I mean everything I dreamed of, everything that I'd worked so hard for. I mean to go to college, everything fell apart because I finally understood I was vulnerable.
3: She wasn't just doing a good speech. She could talk to teenagers and people would let her come in because she was a woman. She was great at high schools because all the girls said she looks just like me and all the boys said, "Oh my god, she's so hot." And That's what we needed, you know, and then we needed her to say, hi, my name's Jennifer and I have HIV because it just rocked them to their core when that happened. It made them believe that it could happen to them. It made them believe that it could happen to somebody they knew or somebody they were dating. I can't even estimate how many lives she probably saved.
1: As a 19, 20, 21-year-old, Jennifer looked healthy. She would tell people that she had HIV and they simply didn't believe her. And so she went on with her life, speaking, going to concerts and nightclubs. But the fact was, she was very much staring at a clock. She quit college because what good would a degree be, she thought. And she decided that with the last few years of her life, she wanted to make something more permanent that could reach more people. A documentary. Jennifer partnered up with another HIV-positive woman and traveled around the country interviewing other young people.
0: So as a... Young woman with few responsibilities in the world, I didn't have very many affairs to get in order. My greatest affair to get in order was to see the documentary film through. That was really the one thing, and at the time, it was my baby. And just getting that film out into the world was all that I
1: wanted to finish.
2: We never talked directly about her frustration with the disease.
1: Judith Rizzio was another friend of Jennifer's and a mentor—
2: How it did manifest, though, with us was that she was beginning that process of creating bloodlines, the video that she made.
1: Judith remembers how passionate Jennifer was about the movie, but she also remembers it was around this time she started to see Jennifer's body get weaker and weaker.
2: We were in northwest Portland, and we were sitting on the curb, and I remember her just sitting down and in tears, saying she was exhausted. She just didn't know she could do this anymore. This was taking so much out of her, and she just wanted to make sure she got this done before she died.
0: I wasn't sleeping very much. I was working all the time and probably pushing what was otherwise a young body (laughs) very, very hard in tandem with the onslaught that HIV had.
1: So you've got shingles and lesions and you've got pneumonia and you're losing weight and you're just...
0: Using every last bit of energy that I had. I was going to work on this until I died. I didn't think about how could I take care of me and maybe extend my life. It wasn't part of the thinking process. It was just try to get this done so that as many other people as possible understand that... This has to stop.
1: There were some antiretrovirals in trials at the time, but Jennifer didn't qualify. She was dying, but she wasn't close enough to death yet. She kept working, she stayed focused, and in 1998, she and her co-director finished the documentary.
3: My parents said that they needed to have me up for dinner and spend some time with me. And um, as soon as I got there, they looked like ghosts. And they said... We have really bad news for you. They said we found out that you've been infected with HIV. You have HIV.
1: And the documentary holds up pretty well. Scene after scene there's this cast of young men and women, beautiful 18, 19, 20-somethings, trying to explain what it's like to have made the biggest mistake of your life. And Jennifer's in the film too. She looks so young. Her hair is shorter, she's smiling. But it also looks like, at the same time, she's trying not to cry.
0: I really, really want to get old. (laughs) There's so many people who don't want to get wrinkled. There's so many people who don't want to have gray hair. But all I want is to have long gray hair that I put up in a bun and lots and lots of wrinkles.
1: MTV aired the film on World AIDS Day. The New York Times called it a pointed, moving documentary. The Los Angeles Times said it eloquently humanizes the disease. Jennifer became a kind of national HIV celebrity. She says the Montel Williams show came calling. There'd be a national speaking tour to college campuses. MTV even decided to keep airing the documentary for years. Jennifer had raced through what she thought would be her short life with a single goal, sharing her mistake so other people wouldn't make it too. But up next... Jennifer had to do the one thing she hadn't at all prepared for, living. Living a long, normal, boring, regular life with a very public face of HIV. It's May 1st, 2008, 9 o'clock. Millions and millions of Americans are sitting on their couches or their Lazy Boys or whatever, and they turn on their television, not to watch the Super Bowl, not to watch the World Series, but to watch Grey's Anatomy.
3: Great surgeons aren't made. They're born. It takes
1: just That's right, Grey's Anatomy Night in America. And not just any Grey's Night, it was summer sweeps. 17.5 million people were watching. Grace pulled out all of the stops, including a cameo from Dr. Addison Montgomery, who had left a year earlier, but she was back.
2: Welcome back. I am not back. I am here for a surgery.
1: So the way I learned about Jennifer Jaco was actually because of this Grey's Anatomy episode. You would never know from watching it, but buried in here is a secret experiment that in essence was a kind of referendum about Jennifer Jacob. Jennifer almost died in 1997. She was running herself down, trying to finish the documentary. And around that time, she met a boyfriend who was willing to stay with her for however long Jennifer had left. But then she started to get better. A combination of antiretrovirals worked for her almost immediately, which was incredible, but came with some survivor's guilt.
0: We're like warriors. We've come back from this war. And we have this kind of AIDS PTSD It's a very strange thing when you think that you're going to die at a very young age to change that mindset of knowing that you'll get older.
1: As Jennifer's health improved, she started letting herself think about the future. She and her boyfriend got married, and in 2006, they made a choice that ultimately put Jennifer more in the spotlight than she'd ever anticipated. Jennifer had always wanted to be a mother, but she had concerns. Would she infect the baby? Would she even be around long enough to care for the child? But as medicine improved, the outlook for HIV-positive women to safely have children started to improve as well.
0: It also was a place of starting to recognize that I indeed had a future, that, oh, perhaps I will grow old enough to have gray hair. And, oh, look, there's some beginnings of smile lines and crow's feet around my eyes. I'm going to get to have wrinkles.
1: By 2006, the chances of a baby born to an HIV-positive mother also having HIV were counterintuitively low. The baby's largely protected from the mother by the placenta. The baby makes its own blood cells, its own veins, its own heart. So the biggest risk of transmission comes from the birth itself. And as long as the mother takes medication and keeps her virus undetectably low, the odds of transmitting HIV from mother to baby was about 2%. It's even lower today. Jennifer and her husband decided to go for it. Jennifer got pregnant, and about six months later, Jennifer got a phone call. It was Newsweek magazine. They were doing a special issue for the 25th anniversary of AIDS and wanted to know if they could photograph her. Just days before the magazine came out, someone from Newsweek called back. Not only were her photographs going to be included, Jennifer would be the cover. Jennifer's friend, Judith Rizzio, remembers the day the magazine hit the stands.
2: I was at Fred Meyers, which is a store here in Portland, and I just ran to find the Newsweek.
1: Judith went out and found the magazine, and there was Jennifer. On the cover, in a red dress, her left hand resting on her stomach. The photo was shot from below, which makes Jennifer look statuesque. She's staring straight out, almost defiantly, next to the words, the new faces of HIV. Judith picked up a copy of the magazine.
2: And just sat there, and with my eyes open, and I cannot believe I did this. But, you know, hell, she was on the cover, and I went to this woman in front of me, standing in line, going, You see that? I'm like a mother to She's like a daughter. She's amazing. And the woman was just like, Oh, my God. She's going to have a baby, and she has AIDS?
1: For Jennifer, being on the cover was a celebration about how far medicine and she had come. But the rest of the country... Wasn't necessarily on the same page. This was 2006. The country had largely moved on from the HIV crisis. But still, most Americans at this point did not know or did not believe that an HIV positive woman could become pregnant, and with the right treatment, drastically reduce the chance of her baby being HIV positive. Jennifer was not at all prepared for the letters she would get.
0: I think the worst one was the person who told me that I should have had an abortion and that while they didn't believe in that that I was an example of a person who should have had an abortion.
1: Oh wow. They so they said I don't I don't believe in abortion morally, but this is one case where someone should make an exception. Yes. To be fair, Jennifer didn't get a ton of hate mail, but the handful of letters and online attacks were enough to shake her.
0: Did I make the wrong choice? Did I did I do something bad? Am I a bad person? Am I selfish? And, and, then, and then revisiting, yes, I made the right choice. I followed the best medical developments that we've had so far. I've been completely adherent to following my medical plan. I have protected myself. I've protected my partner. I have protected this baby, and I want this baby. This baby is wanted.
1: The strange thing is that if people would have bothered to open the magazine, they would have learned exactly what Jennifer knew, that having this baby was in fact not very risky at all for the child. It was a frustrating question, though. If being on the cover of one of the nation's biggest magazines couldn't get a message across to people, what could? Jennifer's baby was healthy and HIV negative. But after the Newsweek cover, Jennifer decided to keep a low profile. The reaction to the cover had caught her by surprise. HIV is a complicated disease— that people have complicated reactions to.
0: Well, HIV is a topic around which there's a lot of misperceptions and lack of understanding, and what we know isn't always translated into how we ultimately feel.
1: This is Tina Hoff. She's with the Kaiser Family Foundation. Kaiser has done a ton of work around HIV, including studying what the public knows and doesn't know about the disease. Kaiser saw that for some reason, people were not getting this pregnancy thing, and so they decided to try something completely different. Product placement. Three weeks from tonight. I told
2: you never to page me at the hospital. Grey's
1: Anatomy returns with an all-new episode. There was an accident. Here's what the plan was. We know that putting Ray-Bans on Tom Cruise can sell a lot of sunglasses. Kaiser wanted to see if that same idea could work to correct public opinion. Kaiser had convinced Grey's Anatomy, one of the biggest shows in the country at the time, to try an experiment. They'd work together, write part of a show about an HIV-positive pregnant woman sneak some facts in there, and see whether or not that would do the trick. Kaiser had helped produce Jennifer Jaco's documentary in the 1990s, and they knew her history. They called her up and asked her if she'd be willing to come into the writer's room and tell her story. Jennifer agreed, and about six months later, her story showed up in primetime.
3: Great surgeons aren't made. They're born. It takes gestation.
1: Which brings us back to May 1st, 2008. Jennifer was tuning in with the millions and millions of other Americans.
0: At my house in my living room with my husband and and a couple of dear friends with the little one in bed upstairs.
1: The show starts. Dr. Addison Montgomery is back. I am not
2: back. I am here for a surgery.
1: Jennifer hasn't seen the script, so she has no idea how she's going to be incorporated into this thing. Then about halfway through the episode...
0: Sorry, that took so long.
1: Dr. Izzy Stevens, played by Katherine Heigl, walks into a room and she's beaming at a grim-looking couple.
0: Congratulations, you're pregnant. We need to schedule
1: an abortion. What plays out isn't exactly Jennifer's story. In the episode, for example, the pregnancy is an accident.
0: There's no decision to make. I'm HIV positive and the condom broke.
1: But Jennifer remembers one line in particular... It was word for word something she said in the writer's room.
0: I was diagnosed at 19. And And I've learned how to to live with this. And I never want to bring a child into this world who's infected. Those are words that I spoke in that room. I I remember saying, that's... She's... She's me.
1: In total, there are three small scenes in this subplot. And in the final scene, that's where the message gets hammered home. I was... Ineffectual. It was unclear.
0: I've I remember thinking, I wonder if it's going to stand out.
1: Tina Hoff from the Kaiser Foundation.
0: Because it's sort of competing with all this other drama. I wasn't telling you there is some chance your baby might not be born sick. I was telling you there is a 98% chance your baby could be born perfectly healthy.
1: It's not particularly subtle.
0: <laughs> um, I would say that's, that's probably true. <laughs> I think there are four discrete mentions. Yes. A 98% chance. There's a higher chance of your baby being born with Down syndrome than there is of you passing HIV onto your child. A 98% chance. 98% chance.
1: (sighs) To see if the message stuck, Kaiser did a survey before and after the episode aired. All right, so let me, can I read you these statistics? Yes,
0: I'm so curious.
1: Yeah. Um, Much to my surprise, though, Jennifer had no idea that Kaiser had tested to see if the message worked. Um, okay, here, here's here's the best way it's put: the statement. Do you agree or disagree? It is irresponsible for a woman who knows she is HIV positive to have a baby. So before the episode ran, it was sixty one percent of people agree that it is irresponsible. One week after the episode ran, the number was down to thirty four percent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that brings a happy tear to my eye.
1: Why do you say that?
0: Because that vitriol that I received, that poison that came toward me, was because of ignorance, because of not knowing all of the facts.
1: Well, and the way the way I think about this is, you were on the cover of this Newsweek magazine, and you were an HIV positive woman who was very clearly pregnant and going to have this child. You didn't really have a chance to sort of say why you had made this decision. Mm-hmm. But what Grey's Anatomy essentially gave you a chance to do was to correct the record anonymously from behind the scenes.
0: Exactly. It, You know, the, the fiery activist in me is so fulfilled <laughs> right now, knowing, knowing that was such effective work. And I think that I'm just absolutely giddy about it. <laughs> Grey's episode, season four, episode 13, title, Peace of My Heart. Oh, I think it's taking us to the right one because it's the last one I've watched.
1: Jennifer watched this episode of Grey's Anatomy with her daughter, Bianca Stella, for the first time when I visited their house. They were sitting on the couch, Bianca had the remote, and they started watching the first scene.
0: Sorry, it took so long. Congratulations, you're pregnant. We need to
2: schedule an abortion.
0: The emotional thing about that is that while I was...
1: It's hard to hear, but Bianca Stella asks her mom, wait, they wanted to kill the baby?
0: Well, so she thinks because she's HIV positive that she can't have a healthy baby, so she needs to stop the pregnancy.
1: Bianca Stella doesn't say anything, but her face looks skeptical, like when you think an adult is lying to you. Like, why would anyone think that HIV and the mother would get to the baby? So Jennifer jumps in.
0: There was a clinic that I'd hoped to be seen when I was first pregnant with you. And they offered me to stop the pregnancy because they knew I was HIV positive and they didn't want to help me with the pregnancy.
2: What? That's
0: mean. Well, they were also ignorant. They didn't know that I could have a healthy pregnancy and that you could be born healthy. So they tried? They offered me. Oh, good. A late one. To stop the pregnancy. And that was very
1: sad. It hadn't really occurred to me until this moment that Jennifer's life as an activist has sort of flipped upside down. She used to send all of her energy outward, trying to protect as many people as possible from this one mistake she made. But now as a mother, her focus has become protecting Bianca Stella from that mistake. The actual virus to some extent, but the stigma also.
0: Do most of your friends know that your mama has HIV? I
2: think most of them, but I
1: only have like three or two. I'm on the verge of two.
0: You have more friends than that. I
1: know, but like good friends, like friends' friends.
0: So do you think that Eleanor knows that mama has HIV?
2: Yeah, I told her, but not other stuff. I just told her that she has HIV.
0: Do you think that, that Ryan... We've been that very fortunate has so has far, I have not heard of any teasing. And I don't know if already she has certain friends who don't make themselves available for playdates because I'm an HIV positive mother. It's very easy to not respond to emailed requests for playdates. It's very easy to not invite another kid to a birthday party. I'm terrified of that day. And this is tough. There are arguments both ways. Well, what if I drive somebody's child somewhere and we get in a car accident shouldn't I have told that parent and and that took the choice away from them to choose whether or not to allow their child to be in a car with me I don't know the answer to that question and it's one that I am delicately skating as I go along in this adventure of motherhood
1: When I first started reporting this story, I couldn't for the life of me figure out why Jennifer Jaco might want to participate. After spending big parts of her life in the spotlight and then retreating from it, why do a whole other story? But now I think I finally get it. It turns out there are two kinds of mistakes we make. There are the small screw-ups that we learn from and then hopefully we never do again. And then there are the really big mistakes, where it doesn't matter how much we learn, they're never going away. What Jennifer's realized is that the way to deal with something like that is to embrace it with radical honesty and to simply not try to outrun it, because you can't. And by wearing this mistake all of the time, Jennifer has figured out a way to not let the worst mistake of her life ruin her life. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was edited by Ben Adair. Our team also includes Jillian Weinberger, Elaine Chen, Mary Harris, Julia Longoria, and Amanda Aronchik. Our technical director is Casey Means. Tony Phillips is the vice president of on-demand content for WNYC. Special thanks to the Multnomah County HIV Services Center, Morgan Shanafelt, John Forsgren, Ethan Hill, Jeremy Bloom, and a very special thanks to Alan Solani for helping me understand how babies are made. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Charina Endowment Fund, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation.